Hello, and welcome back to another edition of Battleground Ideas, When Faith, Philosophy, and Culture Collide. My name is Chuck Mason, and I want to welcome you back to the podcast today and say thank you because I know that your time is important. We're going to be continue with our series on socialism. Today's episode is called Socialism 101, and the Genocide Begins. And I'm going to start by reading an excerpt from the introduction to the abridged version of Alexander Solzhenitsyn's The Gulag Archipelago. And he wrote this in December 1983, and it says, If it were possible for any nation to fathom another people's bitter experience through a book, how much easier its future fate would be and how many calamities and mistakes it could avoid. But it is very difficult. There's always this fallacious belief. It would not be the same here. Here such things are impossible. Alas, all the evil of the 20th century is possible everywhere on earth. Yet I have not given up all hope that human beings and nations may be able, in spite of all, to learn from the experience of other people without having to live through it personally. Solzhenitsyn simply articulates what so many throughout history have said when totalitarian dictatorships arise in any given country, which is, there's no way that this could have ever happened here, and there's no way that it could have ever happened within our government or within our people. And the point is well made, and if you think about the history of the rise of the most brutal dictatorships in the world, people who lived in the very lands where these brutal dictatorships took place said the very same thing about their own country. It could never be possible here. When Hitler was gaining control in Germany, even though it was post-war, and yes, there was such difficulty and economic hardship with Weimar Germany and paying for the reparations for World War I, Germany was probably the best educated country in the world at the time, or certainly one of them. And it was probably one of the most culturally advanced at the time. And it would be one of the last places you would ever think that something so murderous could come forth. And similar things could be said about the revolutions that happened within Russia and other parts where socialism took a hold in the world. And as Solzhenitsyn recognizes, and he says, alas, all the evil of the 20th century is possible everywhere on earth. And that fact remains undeniable. Now, as I have said in earlier podcasts, I'm not saying, nor am I predicting that a socialist revolution, as happened in places like Russia or China or Vietnam, is going to happen here in America. However, politicians in America are embracing socialism as a source of ideas to help us with the challenges that we face, which means that they're drawing from the most murderous ideology the world has ever known. And yet most people are completely unaware of the brutal history of socialism as it sought to eliminate the people who stood in opposition against it. So today on the podcast, we're going to take a look at that history so that you can know the truth that so many people, including myself, are completely unaware of. But that truth is something that everyone who embraces socialism or encounters socialism needs to know. Although socialists claim that they seek economic and social equality and justice, it's hard to deny that they carry that out by seeking vengeance and retribution against the very people they consider to be oppressors and exploiters and those causing the injustice. You can see this clearly in the words of Vladimir Lenin, who was the architect of the very first socialist government. 
I'm reading from Alexander Solzhenitsyn's Gulag Archipelago, which was a chronicle of the murder and genocide that happened within the Soviet concentration camps and Gulag system, starting in the beginning of the Russian Revolution in 1917. And he writes, And even while sitting peacefully among the fragrant hay mowings of Rosliv and listening to the buzzing bumblebees, Lenin could not help but ponder the future penal systems. Even then, he had worked things out and reassured us, the suppression of the minority exploiters by the majority of the hired slaves of yesterday is a matter so comparatively easy, simple, and natural that it's going to cost much less in blood and will be cheaper for humanity than the preceding suppression of the majority by the minority. According to the estimates of the professor of statistics, Kurganov, this, quote, comparatively easy, unquote, internal repression cost us from the beginning of the October Revolution up to 1959, a total of 66, yes, 66 million lives. 66 million lives. And those are the official statistics from within the USSR itself. And they don't deny it. But the most telling aspect of this is what Lenin is saying in the very beginning of this passage. When he says, the suppression of the minority of exploiters by the majority of the hired slaves of yesterday is a matter so comparatively easy and simple and natural that it's going to cost much less in blood and will be much cheaper for humanity than the preceding suppression of the majority by the minority. And once again, that is Marxist thought in that it seeks to end exploitation and oppression and suffering, but it never seems to do so only by creating an economic equality, by simply redistributing economic resources on their own. In the words of Karl Marx, from each according to his ability to each according to his need. Simply redistributing economic resources never seemed to be enough. From the beginning, it was deemed necessary to target those who were considered to be oppressors and exploiters. Which is why Solzhenitsyn quotes Lenin saying, The suppression of the minority of exploiters by the majority of the hired slaves of yesterday is a matter so comparatively easy, simple, and natural. So from the beginning of the Russian Revolution, Vladimir Lenin had it in mind to, in a sense, turn the tables. And he did so by being the first to develop concentration camps. And once again, reading from the Gulag Archipelago. In August 1918, Vladimir Ilyich Lenin wrote in a telegram to Yevgenia Bosch and to the Pezna Provincial Executive Committee, lock up all the doubtful ones in a concentration camp outside the city. Only on September 5, 1918, 10 days after this telegram, was the decree on the Red Terror published. In addition to the instructions on mass executions, it stated in particular, secure the Soviet Republic against its class enemies by isolating them in concentration camps. So that this is where the term concentration camps was discovered and immediately seized upon and confirmed. One of the principal terms of the 20th century, and it was to have a big international future. And this is when it was born, in August and September 1918. The word itself had already been used during World War I, but in relation to POWs and undesirable foreigners. But here in 1918, it was for the first time applied to the citizens of one's own country. 
the camps operated by subjecting political prisoners to forced labor year-round up to 12 hours a day with inadequate tools, food, clothing, medical resources, shelter, and heat. The camps had two goals, which they achieved by exposing those who had exploited and oppressed under the capitalist system to a minimum of 10 years forced labor under the most brutally unimaginable conditions in Siberia. The first being that the labor would break the will and the spirit of the oppressors and the exploiters, and they would fall in line lockstep with Marxist ideology, or it would simply kill them, which is how 66 million people lost their lives. And this extermination was seen as a positive thing within Vladimir Lenin's socialist government in Russia. Reading once again from the Gulag Archipelago, chapter 4 of the abridged version. And the clock of history was striking. In 1933, at the January session of the Central Committee of the Communist Party, the great leader, who at that time was already computing the number of two-legged beings who had yet to be exterminated in this country, declared that the dying off of the state, so firmly promised by Lenin and fervently expected by humanists, would not come about through weakening the state, but on the contrary, through strengthening it to the utmost, which was necessary in order to kill off the moribund classes. This was so unexpectedly brilliant that it was not given to every little mind to grasp it. But Vyshinsky, ever the loyal apprentice, immediately picked it up, and this means the maximum strengthening of corrective labor institutions. Entry into socialism via the maximum strengthening of prison, and this was not some satirical magazine cracking a joke either, but was said by the prosecutor general of the Soviet Union. The first socialist government considered itself strengthened by targeting enemies of the state and exterminating them through the use of forced labor within concentration camps. Once again, we're reading Soviet history, and this history helps us to answer the question that was raised in previous podcasts. Do socialists have compassion for the poor, or do they just hate the rich? The answer to the question becomes self-evident when you realize that there is zero compassion within these concentration camps. Returning to the Gulag Archipelago, Solzhenitsyn chronicles the construction of the White Sea Baltic Canal which occurred through the use of forced labor by people digging with picks, shovels, and sledgehammers during the deepest part of a Siberian winter. And he writes, They were in such a rush that trainloads of workers kept on arriving and arriving at the canal site before there were any barracks there, or supplies, or tools, or a precise plan. And what was to be done? Women came in silk dresses and were handed a wheelbarrow on the spot. From the Kratonovsk camps in Central Asia, from Stalingrad, from Samarkand, they brought in Turkmenians and Chaziks in their burka robes and their turbans, here to the Karelian sub-winter cold. The normal output for work that was expected on a daily basis was to break up two and a half cubic yards of granite and to move at a distance of a hundred yards in a wheelbarrow. And the snow kept falling and covering everything up, and the wheelbarrows somersaulted off the gangways into the snow. The very grandeur of this construction project consisted in the fact that it was carried out without any contemporary technology and equipment, and without any supplies from the nation as a whole. These are not the tempos of noxious European-American capitalism. These are the socialist tempos, the government authors brag. And that's what our gas execution van consisted of. 
we didn't have any gas for the gas chamber. And what Solzhenitsyn is saying here is they simply didn't need gas for the gas chamber because the gas chamber was the Siberian winter itself. And the fact that countless hundreds of thousands of people went out to perform labor with inadequate food, clothing, shelter, and tools. And the outcome was inevitable. Solzhenitsyn includes material by V.T. Vitkovsky, who worked on the White Sea Canal as a work supervisor and saved the lives of many prisoners with that very same tutka, the falsification of work reports, and he draws a picture of the evenings. At the end of the workday, there were corpses left on the work site. The snow powdered their faces. One of them was hunched over beneath an overturned wheelbarrow. He had hidden his hands in his sleeves and frozen to death in that position. Someone had frozen with his head bent down between his knees. Two were frozen back to back, leaning against each other. They were peasant lads and the best workers one could possibly imagine, and they were sent to the canal in tens of thousands at a time, and the authorities tried to work things out so that no one got to the same sub-camp as his father. They tried to break up families, and right off they gave them work quotas of rock and boulders that you'd be unable to fulfill even in summer. No one was able to teach them anything, to warn them, and in their village simplicity they gave all their strength to their work and weakened very swiftly and then froze to death, embracing in pairs. At night the sledges went out and collected them. Drivers threw the corpses onto the sledges with a dull clunk. And in the summer bones remained from corpses which had not been removed at the time, and together with the rock they got mixed into the concrete mixer. And in this way, they got into the concrete of the last lock at the city of Bolomorsk and will be preserved there forever. And Solzhenitsyn gives his reflections on the canal that he had experienced many years later once he was released from the camps and the repression of the gulags had ended. And he writes, In 1966, I spent eight hours by the canal. During this time, there was one self-propelled barge which passed from Pavnetsk to Soroka, and one identical in type which passed from Soroka to Pavnets. Their numbers were different, and it was only by their numbers that I could tell them apart and be sure that it was not the same one as before on its way back, because they were loaded all together identically with the very same pine logs which had been lying exposed for a long time and for useless for anything except firewood, and cancelling the one load against the other we get zero, and a quarter of a million corpses to be remembered. Solzhenitsyn's Gulag Archipelago was originally three volumes and 1,700 pages, which chronicles atrocities that are unimaginable. And this evil was deemed necessary from the outset in the first socialist government and continued in every socialist government thereafter. Here are some commonly agreed upon estimates for other countries. 40 to 60 million under Mao Zedong's great leap forward in China, with most of those deaths happening between 1958 and 1962, which is the end of the Eisenhower and beginning of the Kennedy administrations. Two million in the country of Vietnam after socialist government control. Three million in the killing fields of Cambodia. And the list doesn't stop there. Once again, the biggest take-home message here is this. Do socialists have compassion for the poor, or do they hate the rich? And that's really where their area of greatest concern is. And I want you to consider this for a moment. 
We have a call in the United States right now for a social justice movement, and we call them the social justice warriors. And really what they are is simply a social extension of Marxism in which they are targeting oppressors in an effort to, quote, protect the oppressed. But where does justice turn into vengeance? And I want us to consider that as we bring this podcast to a close. I've heard it put this way, justice is the minimum use of force needed to rectify an injustice and to make it right. And vengeance goes beyond the minimum necessary force in order to exact punishment and to seek revenge. And I would offer that that's precisely what we're seeing within the various manifestations of socialist governments throughout the world. Because this isn't simply about seeking compensation for the poor and an end to their suffering. But I would offer that they're taking it one step further in seeking vengeance against those they identify as oppressors and exploiters. And so I'll close this podcast by to revisit the words of Solzhenitsyn when he says, There is always this fallacious belief. It would not be the same here. Here such things are impossible. And I'll offer this in closing. What guarantee can you give me that any human heart will not seek vengeance when it has its own internal justification for doing so? People say that we are too good as a culture, we're too good as a people. Such things could never happen here. But when people live in a collective society with a collective mindset and have a collective justification to exact revenge upon an oppressor, Anything is possible. And that's precisely where we're going to start next time when we take a look at the collective mindset behind Marxism and what happens in any culture when people lose a sense of personal responsibility and buy into a collective mindset that creates its own justifications. Once again, thank you for spending time with us here at Battleground Ideas When Faith, Philosophy, and Culture Collide. Again, you can email us through the website with comments, concerns, criticisms, whatever you like. One of the things I hope to do is to be able to read some emails at the very end of the podcast and uh, read people's criticisms or concerns, whatever that might be, and address those. So don't hesitate to email us and please share this podcast. This week, I'll have a shorter cultural segment. You'll see that go out on Facebook Uh, later this week on Thursday or Friday. We hope you check that out. And once again, thank you so much for being a part of the podcast.